Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Greetings fellow time travellers, great to have you with me as we journey through history, uh, the history of the world together. Before we get started on today's episode, once again a big thank you to the people who show their support for the podcast series that Paul and I do together by subscribing to my patreon.com site. It's that support there that makes the free love letters possible, so thank you to everyone who's uh, part of the patreon.com family. If you're not a family member yet and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com, look for me by name, sign up, part with a little bit of cash, become a member. Uh, you get access to a weekly Q&A, uh, a vodcast, competitions, really uh, all the various things that Paul and I come up with as we go along. It'd be great to have you as part of our family of like-minded, curious, questioning types. Okay, now it's time to strap ourselves into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. An island race who see themselves as special and uniquely blessed, warring families and the rise of new religions, shifting alliances, assassination plots and deadly power games, court politics and the real power behind the throne. A clandestine meeting beneath breathtakingly beautiful wisteria trees as players move into position, as loyalty to family above emperors or kings sets this island nation on its unique path. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the world, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode we found ourselves towards the end of the 6th century AD and we watched as a new religion was born, grew and then swept across the world. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Morning Paul. Yes, last week we were in the Arabian Peninsula but in this episode we're leaving behind the old world where much of our story so far has been set and travelling all the way to the other side of the globe. We're still in the 6th century but this week we're in Asia watching a simmering pot of complex and brutal power struggles unfold on an island nation whose geographical separation was an important part of the mix that helped form this unique country. We are meeting beneath Wisteria on the island of Japan. Morning Paul. Uh, Where are we this week? We are in Japan. Uh, So it's great. It's like a it's like a palate cleanse after all that stuff about the old world, Mesopotamia and Persia and Greece and Rome and Egypt and you know that those places and names that have dominated so much of the narrative so far. 
now we get to a completely different place. You know, so it's like a little helping of sorbet that you have to cleanse your palate before you try something else. Uh, we're in Japan. Uh, we're in Japan in the, the 500s, 600s AD. It's a story that kind of overlaps the turn of that those centuries. Uh, and specifically, uh, just as a little amuse-bouche, as it were, it's about a covert tete-a-tete, a secret meeting beneath a bower of wisteria, which is a a plant, a flower that's revered in Japan. Japan's endlessly fascinating. I'm guessing I'm probably still right in saying that a majority of British people don't get to Japan. It's a long way away and perhaps you need a reason to go there. It's maybe not a holiday destination for too many people. I've been in Japan uh, because of television. Magic Carpet Television took me there. Uh, I went to film an episode of a four-part series I made called The Last Explorers. I've mentioned it before. Four Scottish pioneers at the end of the 1900s, beginning of the 20th century. Um, and we followed a, a, a Scotsman from uh, the northeast of Scotland called Thomas Blake Glover to Japan. And we were a month in Japan filming his story. Uh, so I got that's a good chunk of time. I got a good look around. We were all over the place. We were in Tokyo, we were in Okinawa, we were in a whole list of places too long to mention. And it's... Did it, it's, did it, did it grab you? It, yeah, it did. Uh, there's something I've struggled really to put into words, the sensation that I experienced there. Many places that I have visited, most places I've visited have felt foreign to me. You know, and I would include in that somewhere as close as France, uh, and certainly Africa... North America, uh, you know, you can feel, you know, you're in a, you, you know, you're in a foreign country. In Japan, uniquely, really, I felt I was foreign to it. I felt as if I didn't fit in. I felt uh, incongruous and out of place. Which is not to say that I didn't like it because I did. I loved it. I was fascinated by it. But there's a whole different way of uh, thinking, way of being, way of understanding society and community and there's a lot of etiquette that's quite difficult to stay on the right side of we had a fixer with us which in television world is you know a person who travels with you who knows the country very well and speaks your language and 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 the other language and is your your kind of interlocutor and mediator uh so that that was without the fixer we would really have struggled I mean, for one thing, I remember the, everything. Well, why wouldn't it be? But everything was in Japanese. So shop signs, for example, were utterly Im- impenetrable. So if you were on your own and you wanted something as banal as a, I don't know, a toothbrush, how are you going to find a the sort of shop that would sell you a toothbrush? You just can't. And driving, if you were on your own, the road signs. You know where if you're in in Europe, you can manage with a smattering of bits and pieces of European languages. It's a non-starter in Japan. You just, if you don't have the Japanese language, you're in real trouble and you're really dependent on, on your fixer. So, like I say, I felt really uh, out of place. And when it comes to the etiquette, you, you can readily make mistakes. You know, for example, in entering people's homes, entering buildings, there's a whole routine about taking off your shoes, turning them away so that the toes point away from the house because you're you're indicating there that you're not intending to stay for too long. Um, there's all manner of practices and the other thing that's difficult because a lot of the culture was about face 
you know, saving face, not being seen to be embarrassed, not being seen to be offended, even when you are, means that you could make gross mistakes as a stupid, hairy, limey foreigner. And the, the, and the, the, the endlessly polite Japanese people won't tell you that you've done anything wrong. And it's only when you come out and you leave and you're saying to, well, I think that went quite well. We got everything done there. And the fixer would be like head and hands. Going, God, I can't believe what you did in there. And you go, whoa, what did I do? Nobody said anything. So it's quite, it's a, that only, it just adds to the allure, actually. I, I mean, maybe, I can't imagine it's changed so much. It's maybe 10 or 12 years ago that I was in Japan. And it's beautiful and fascinating and varied. It's also strangely like Britain which sounds paradoxical given what I've just said, but, and Japan recognises this too. There's an understanding, or there came to be an understanding between Japan and Britain that we understood that Japan was in a, a similar position to us and they understood that we were in a similar position to them, which is to say a small set of islands off the coast of a much larger, often overbearing continental neighbour. Because obviously they're cheek by jowl with with mainland China and over the you know obviously over the centuries that's been no end of trouble and we've got we've got continental Europe and obviously we were fighting France you know like cat and dog for a thousand years and and all the rest of it and um, and there's there's various other things as well there was a commitment to family there's a, a commitment to order you know we famously queue and we're polite and we have our own etiquette I suppose based around quite rigid social norms. So lots of similarities. I remember hearing as well something, just an anecdotal thing I loved. Uh, obviously the, you know, the Japanese dress for a, for a, for a man is a, a kimono, very loose, very practical actually, wrap around garment. But they developed, have developed for, for business dress, a fondness for British style suits, the men. And obviously those that could afford it uh, would get them from Savile Row, like everyone else that can afford it. I don't have a Savile Row suit. I don't know if you do, Paul, but I, I certainly don't. Uh, anyway, the, the Japanese word for that formal suit is a sabiro from Savile Row. So they, they talk about wearing their sabiro, which is, you know, not just suits from Savile Row, but suits that are cut in the, in the traditional Western English, whatever, fashion. So it's, there's there's tons to be fascinated about in in Japan. It's just an extraordinary place, and it affects you emotionally and physically. It's a challenging climate. I've, in some respects, I've never been in a more challenging climate. It's extremely hot and humid in some places. Difficult, fascinating, brilliant, amazing food, all of that. They developed as well ideals around isolation and self-reliance. You know, they want to be left alone. Japan famously want, they didn't want anyone. They, it, for, for a couple of hundred years, any foreigners, even in a shipwreck, washing up on the coast of Japan, were just put to death. And Japanese people weren't allowed to leave Japan for a couple of hundred years, uh, up until the, the, you know, the latter part of the 1800s. Centuries of, of closed offedness. It was amazing. Maybe more than 200 years. So there in Japan, it led to the evolution of people who see themselves saw themselves and still see themselves as uniquely blessed and special. Now, how much does that remind you of the traditional British? You know, uniquely blessed and special. So there's a lot going on that, that, to remind you of home. 
Now, this, uh, I think I mentioned at the top that, uh, that this, the moment that we're talking about here in this love letter to the world is a, a secret meeting that took place. Now, I will remind you here of, of, uh, of a secret meeting that I, that I described in the love letter to Britain. Do you remember, does anyone remember, uh, the, the secret meeting in 1304 in Stirling between Robert Bruce, Robert the Bruce and William Lamberton, the Bishop of St Andrews? And they came together because they were two individuals who were fed up with the status quo. In fact, they were threatened by it. Uh, Edward I was dominating Scotland at the time. Uh, Scotland was under the cosh. The church, represented by William Lamberton, the, the Scottish church had always been separate. It called itself Rome's special daughter. And they didn't want any interference between themselves and, and Rome and the Pope. And they were under pressure from the archbishoprics of York and Canterbury to kind of submit to the to the wider church and they didn't want any of that so these two men came together and promised they would back each other to the hilt to put together a plan and a project to create an independent Scotland to break Scotland away from Edward's control uh, establish Robert Bruce as the king of an independent Scotland and in return uh, Robert's side of the bargain would be to maintain the independence of the Scottish church and they signed this secret deal that if either man let the other guy down, they would pay a fine of £10,000 in 1304. A, a, a colossal fortune. Well, they, they worked together and they got it done. So think about that. There's a, an, another secret meeting that took place. Uh, so this time, it's a covert meeting in Japan. We're in the early 7th century, really, is, is when most of the action happens. And at that time, so in the 600s, uh, Japan was enthrall to a clan called Soga. That was the family name, Soga. And they had uh, had achieved power. The patriarch, the head panjandrum of the Soga clan was Umako Soga. And he had engineered and successfully seen off two other powerful families, which is to say the Mononobe and the Nakatomi. I suspect it's the same Nakatomi that's the Nakatomi Tower in Die Hard 1, but I could be wrong. Anyway, the Mononobe and the Nakatomi families, and they had both, in the recent past, had been closer to the emperor and therefore closer to influence and power and, and all of the rest of it. And the head of the Soga finally got fed up with this. And he had to work out how he was going to kind of, you know, subtract the Mononobe and the Nakatomi from the imperial church and still have the Soga clan left over. And what he came up with was that he would use religion as the tool now. You've got to be starting to think already you can hear resonances from other stories in other parts of the world where religion, some powerful individual decides that he can use religion to affect the result that he wants. And the religion in question was Buddhism. Buddhism had begun in, well, the northern part of what we know as India, up, up into the border with Nepal and, and that, that, Tibet up there and it was well established in, in India, it had spread from India into China and there, there was a certain amount of interest in Japan in Buddhism so it's not like Soga invented it uh, or you know was the first to think about doing this but Buddhism so far had never made proper headway in Japan it had always come out second best to Shinto which is the traditional kind of animist uh, religion of Japan. Spirits of water, spirits of mountains, spirits of trees and forests, that kind of thing, and personal shrines. and d d Just a different way of understanding the world and how to be alive in it. 
But in this event, Soga was more determined, and he he brought he brought Buddhism in, imported it with Buddhists, and, and brought it in and started trying to establish it. And it kicked off a war. People got so upset, and in fact, for different other reasons. I mean, people could see what Soga was about that he wasn't just proselytising a new religion. So war followed, and eventually there was a, 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 a climactic battle in the shadow of a mountain called Shigi, in which the, the Soga clan and their followers were, were victorious. Um, it's worth mentioning there's a, a, a young prince or a young well-to-do member of the Soga clan called Shotoku, uh, and he was apparently um, instrumental in establishing Buddhism, he, he was he was regarded he's regarded by some as a bodhisattva, uh, which is like almost better than Buddha. Buddha is an awakened person. Buddha within Buddhism is someone who is awake to to the true texture of reality, and that means that you can leave the the samsara, the spinning wheel of of death, life, and reincarnation. You can get off that hamster wheel and go into nirvana. You know, just go. And the the bodhisattvas don't leave. Although they're awake, they come back. They die and come back to the world to help everyone else. So they actually rank higher than Buddhas, Bodhisattva. So very important. So he's he's in that mix as well. Um, and here's a good bit. The, the legend, obviously, the whole as always, the whole thing's mythologized. Victor's right history and so on and so on. And part of the whole legend of the triumph of of the Soga clan has them with their backs to the wall, really, at Mount Chigi. And what uh, Shotoku does is he takes a piece of sacred wood from a sacred tree, and from it he carves a representation of the four heavenly kings of Buddhism. So four paramount figures within the Buddhist faith. And he wears it like a crown in some form, like a circlet on his forehead. And he, he promises that by doing this, using this symbol, they will be victorious. And he promises that if they are victorious, he'll build a Buddhist temple to the four heavenly kings. Now, if you've been following this, the love letter to the world, you'll remember Constantine, the Roman emperor, who had a you know a make-or-break battle to fight at Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. And before it, he said he had a dream in which he was instructed to put the cross, the Christian cross, on his on his men's armour and on their shields and that if they did that a voice in his head said that he'd be victorious and so they did and so they were so you can see you know it's again you know in in the case of Milvian Bridge and Constantine it was using Christianity in, in some way to get the upper hand and there uh, in Japan 300 years later Soga clan leader thinks I can I can exploit Buddhism to get what I want so it's, you know you see these these repetitions and you know from one side of the world to the other the same sort of things tend to happen. Uh, in the battle at, at, at Mount Shigi, the Mononobe clan were completely destroyed. They were wiped out almost to a man. And in the, in the immediate aftermath, Buddhism went into the ascendant and, and remained so. You know, to this day, Buddhism is a big deal in Japan. Uh, Zen Buddhism and, and so on and so on. So Umako Suga, he made a young prince of his line, uh, Sushun, Emperor put him on the imperial throne, and then quite soon after, there's a lot of politics going on that we don't need to bother about. Quite soon thereafter, uh, Sushun was murdered on the orders of Umako, and Umako 
replaced him on the throne with his niece, Suiko, as empress. Right? So there's a lot of machinations going on. All of this makes the Soga clan very powerful. They've got control of the imperial throne, but they've made, obviously, powerful enemies along the way. The Mononobe were crushed at the battle at, at Mount Shigi, but the Nakatomi were still in the game. They were still powerful and still in a position to challenge Soga. And within the clan, Kamatari Nakatomi was the top dog. And Kamatari was finally triggered into action by a, another murder. There's a lot of murders going on. There's a lot of intrigue and a lot of you know, uh, you know, inter-clan feuding and, you know, senior figures getting bumped off. In 643 AD, that's the important date, by then the new leader of the Suga clan was Iruka Suga. It's so difficult with all the names, isn't it? I remember something else that I learned when I was in Japan. Uh, when it comes to pronouncing Japanese names, all syllables have the same stress. So we tend to say things like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. You know, you're putting emphasis on certain syllables. In Japan, when you hear people talk, they would say Hiroshima, Nagasaki, because the whole thing's, every syllable is equally stressed. So it's all very difficult. So here we go. So the new top dog of the of Suga clan is Iruka. And he murders or commissions the murder, let's say, of Oe Yamashiro, who's an imperial prince. And having bumped off Oe Yamashiro, Iruka Suga makes himself emperor. Right? So now for the first time there's actually, you know, the the head of the, the Soga clan is actually sitting on the imperial throne. And it was in the aftermath of that murder in 643, that upstart move, that the secret meeting took place. The secret meeting that is the moment in this love letter to the world. Um, it's a meeting between Kamatari Nakatomi and Oe Nakano. You don't need to worry too much about the names. It's the theme of the thing that you just pay attention to. So these two, Kamatari Nakatomi and Oe Nakano, they meet beneath an arbour of wisteria, this revered flower, this plant that means so much to the Japanese, and they revere it because of its strength and its beauty. These two things together in the one entity. Just as an example, there's a lot of poetry about it. This is a quote from a poem by Oshikochi no Mitsuni, who was a 10th century poet of the Japanese court. So later, but nonetheless, this is about wisteria. I left the image of wisteria blossoms softly reflected in the pond because it looked so fragile. It could vanish only with the slightest touch. Nevertheless, the wave came and the image was no more. So... It means a lot, it means a great deal uh, to the Japanese, this plant, so that it was, it was symbolic that the, the meeting, this important meeting, took place in such a place. And nonetheless, you know, they're in that beautiful place. You know, the, the, it's these kind of uh, often like sort of lilac-y, purpley flowers, and they, they hang down as kind of like um, upside-down Christmas trees. You know, they're little, you know, they, they come to points, and they're beautifully delicate and very fragrant. And they're in that beautiful place, the pair of them plot a murder. That's basically what it comes down to. So they know that their great rival uh, Iruka Soga is in the palace of Empress Kogyoku. That's his location at that time and so they dispatch an assassin to go and kill him. But at the, when he's in the room 
in the same room, in the you know various people around, courtiers and the rest, the the assassin, the would-be assassin, loses his nerve and he's he's carrying a spear. He drops it, and realizing the the urgency of the moment, Owen Akano is there and he realizes that it's now or never, and he picks up the spear and he performs the murder himself. He kills Iruka Soga. Now they've 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 done more than just plan the murder. The pair of them have decided that um, between them that neither. Oe Nakano nor Kamatari Nakatomi will take the throne themselves because they were trying to play to the subtleties of the various factions in the imperial court and so they, they placed a, a puppet, a placeman a lesser prince called Karu uh, he goes on the throne because d- days after the, the, the assassination Empress Kogyoku just abdicates she just you know, sees the, the writing on the wall, she steps down and so Oe Nakano and Kamatari Nakatomi put their placeman, Prince Karu, on the imperial throne. Uh, he takes on an imperial name, which is traditional, Kotoku, but knowing at all time that the real power lay behind the throne in the two aforementioned figures, Kamatari Nakatomi and Oe Nakano. After a few years, they let a few years pass, let things settle down, bed in, in 668 AD, Nakano assumes the throne and calls himself Emperor Tenji that's the imperial name and he launches reforms called Taika no Kaishin which means the great reformation of the Taika era now just the year following that so they've finally got their you know they've got their way they've got rid of the Soga clan uh, the Nakatomi are back in the ascendant Oe Nakano is in place on the throne but Kamatari Nakatomi falls ill but before he dies the emperor Tenji his fellow conspirator bestows upon him an honorific a praise name Fujiwara which means the field of the wisteria so almost on his deathbed he is given this new family name this honourable family name the field of the wisteria Fujiwara and it it consciously recalls their meeting their momentous meeting beneath the wisteria years before This was a fundamental moment. This was fundamental in the development of the future Japan. The Fujiwara clan, the descendants of Nakatomi, they retain power. And they do that by always having their daughters marry the emperors. This is statecraft because Japanese tradition dictated that children of of, of, a, of a marriage are raised by the mother's family so whoever whatever children were born to the emperor came into their control came into their family so in this master stroke they have influence so the Fujiwara clan now have the kind of influence that you know money can't buy and it, the, the status conferred at the top goes down through the clan, a bit like a, a champagne fountain. You know, it starts at the top and it just gradually, gradually... So, you know, a rising tide floats all boats. Everyone in the Fujiwara clan, you, you know, can, can benefit from this position. So the, the whole thing has gone the way of Kamatari Nakatomi. You know, after all the years of Soga dominance, biding their time, the Nakatomi clan came back in and changed everything on account of this secret murderous tete-a-tete beneath the arbour of wisteria and under the under the terms of the great reformation of the taika era the emperor became a figurehead rather than a leader and this made all the difference you know power didn't lie with the emperor 
he was really just, you know, much like our royal family, I suppose, you know, someone that was there as a symbol, but the, the real power lay elsewhere. And in, in this instance, at that time, power lay with the Fujiwara clan because of this control that they had via the, the family connections. Family was always bedrock, and loyalty was always bedrock in Japanese society. But under the Fujiwara clan, under the terms of the Great Reformation of the Taika era, that was solidified even more and remains a fundamental building block of Japanese society to this day. The Fujiwara clan were succeeded by the Heian era and then the Kamakura era. But the ethos, a lot of the ethos was still there. And under the Kamakura era came the, the, the time of the Shogun. The Shogun were the military leaders, generals, tacticians, leaders of men. And at that point, under the Kamakura clan, they, they were the, where the power really lay. So though there was an, a notional emperor or an empress, the real power lay with the shogun, the military leaders. They really came to the fore. You'll rem- anyone of a certain age will remember the, um, the James Clavell novel of the same name, Shogun, uh, and it became one of those bestseller TV series. Uh, Richard Chamberlain uh, was, played the part of the, of the European uh, ship's captain who ended up shipwrecked on Japan and, and came to prominence, and it's all, all partly based on fact. So that was made possible by the rise of the Shogun. So all of that, the, the loyalty that, that emerged then, the loyalty to family, so that your, your, your loyalty was not the emperor, your loyalty was to family. And that, that way of thinking set Japan on a unique path. So in that way, to loop all the way back to the beginning, Japan had been made a little bit different. A little bit different. And like Britain, she would always remain a little bit different. Either we conquer or we perish. A seemingly unstoppable Muslim force was sweeping across the world. Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, all conquered. Then Spain is skewered. Bordeaux falls. And the rich city of Tours is next on the hit list. Standing in the way of the mighty Muslim army was Charles the Hammer and his Christian Franks. An unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment podcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios and graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.